All right, Genesis chapter 4. Uh, we are going to read down to verse 15, but we are going to go all the way through the chapter this morning. Genesis chapter 4 reads as follows. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Then she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. And its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know him. I my brother's keeper. And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. So now you are cursed from the earth, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. And the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Lord, we thank you for the reading of your word. May you bless the reading of your word. And may our hearts and our minds be open to accept and to receive all that you have for us today as we consider this amazing and wonderful passage of scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. So we come to this important and critical passage of scripture on Cain and Abel, one that is often misunderstood and as we continue in the uh, study of the book of Genesis, uh, we have again a, a whole series of firsts that occur here in Genesis chapter four. For example, uh, we have today, and I'm not going to list all of them, but just a few, we have the first conception and birth of a child mentioned in the Bible, certainly the first since the fall of man. We have the first account of offerings and sacrifices and worship. We have the first mention of anger and its effect on people. We have the first mention of a crime, in this case, murder, as Cain killed his brother Abel. And we have the first declaration of justice, and those are just a few that we will take a look at, at today. So in verse one it says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. And so this is actually speaking 
about the fact, you remember in chapter 3 when there was a prophecy given that um, there would be a future son or a future person born who would take on Satan and who would become the Messiah, although those words were not used, that was the implication of that prophecy that was given in chapter 3. And most commentators believe that Eve herself thought that um, Cain, this firstborn man-child from the Lord, was indeed that person that was prophesied of. But I think we all see here as we have read the story and as we will consider it today, that certainly it was not Cain, and uh, uh, Cain was the complete opposite of what you might think of for someone who would be the Messiah and bring truth and justice and deliverance into the world. And so she said that she had acquired a man from the Lord. And so she certainly looked at it as a blessing. Now keep in mind, uh, we don't know exactly how long it's been since the fall and since God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden. Keep in mind, this is the beginning of time just after the creation. Um, and that as Eve had become pregnant, certainly this was the first pregnancy, and as she had walked through that process and uh, the Lord had promised there at the end of chapter three that uh, pain and difficulty would come in and through childbirth. So Eve, as she's experiencing this, has one person there to help her walk through all of these things, and it was her husband, Adam. And so she did not have a doctor, she did not have a nurse. She did not have a midwife. She only had Adam to help her deliver this child. She had no Lamaze class. No one taught her how to breathe through the contractions. No one had Adam stand there with ice, ice chips ready to go as she was in the process of labor. There were no surgical tools to cut the umbilical cord. You see, this was a primitive situation, wasn't it? And yet the Lord delivered them through it. And so Eve experiences childbirth for the very first time. And Adam is now trained in the skill of uh, helping give birth to children. And so Cain, as he is coming forth, and they named him this, uh, the name of Cain sounds like the Hebrew word for acquired, and his name uh, is related to a word meaning craftsman or metal worker. But we know that he became a tiller of the ground like his father. Remember, Adam had been given the task by God in the garden to till the garden, to cultivate the garden, and to take care of the garden. So it's only fitting that the firstborn son would fall into the father's line of work as he was born. And then in verse 2, she bore again, this time his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And it was a common practice, of course, uh, to have uh, sons follow in their father's footsteps, but also to diversify and to have other ways of making a living for themselves. Uh, both of these were honorable professions. And there is nothing right or wrong, better or worse, between being a tiller of the ground and being um, a shepherd. And so Abel, as he is born, it mean, his name means breath or vapor. Uh, it's a word that can also be translated vanity. Uh, this word, when it's used in the book of Ecclesiastes uh, for the name of Abel, 
is the, their translated vanity. Certainly you've read Ecclesiastes and read those statements about vanity of vanities. And so Abel and Cain are born. And it says in verse 3, And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. So keep in mind here that between the end of chapter 3 and here in chapter 4, as we get into it, that a great deal of time has passed. A great many years. Certainly uh, these boys were older in age. They were able to hold jobs. And now to come to a place in life where they were able to bring their own sacrifices of worship to have their own faith. So you would think they were at least 30 or 40 years old perhaps and, and there are many who estimate them to be even older than that. So in the process of time in verse three, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And so we are not told here in the book of Genesis exactly how uh, worship originated how God had communicated to them what it meant to bring an offering to the Lord, but they certainly knew that by this point in time. And so um, Cain came first and brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And then in verse four, Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. So the word here for offering is the most general sense and it literally means any offering that someone would or could bring to the Lord. There is nothing here that says a blood sacrifice was better than that of the fruit from the ground. There are some over the years who have said that perhaps the reason God respected Abel and didn't respect Cain's offering was because of that very thing that Abel had brought a blood sacrifice of the best of his flock while Cain only brought um, a fruit offering. And we know later in the, in the law that provisions were made for people to bring literally anything to the Lord if it was brought in the right heart, in the right manner. And of course, the Lord had implemented uh, the principle of first fruits a little bit later on. But certainly here, God would have blessed and indeed did bless both the grain offering and the animal offering. And so the worshiper, here's the key thing, the worshiper was to bring his uh, offering in the spirit of a God-honoring attitude and of the first and the best that he had to offer. One person said this in looking at the situation with Cain, Cain's offering was the effort of dead religion while Abel's offering was made in faith in a desire to worship God in spirit and in truth. You say, well, how do we come to that conclusion? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse four, it says, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. So Hebrews 11 sheds some light on this in verse four, where it tells us that Abel's offering was an offering of faith. He came in faith to the Lord. And it's our understanding that Cain's sacrifice was not respected by God because of these things, because he did not come in faith. His attitude and his offering were not the best that he had to offer as he brought these things to the Lord. Now, as we think about offerings and worship today and we think about ourselves, uh, this speaks to us of a few things. The first thing is, 
When we come to times of worship, whether those times of worship are corporate, as we're celebrating today, or whether they are personal and private, as they hopefully are on a daily basis for us, here's the question. Are we coming with a heart and with an attitude before the Lord that we want to be in faith before him, that we want to grow in knowledge before him, that we want to grow in holiness, that we want to draw closer to the Lord and that we want to be more conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ? Or perhaps like Cain, do we come with a half-hearted attitude or with an attitude that is not an attitude of faith or it's not an attitude of bringing our best Certainly as we come to the Lord, we can bring him the best with respect to our attention and with respect to our heart. As we think about uh, giving, you know, giving is an act of worship and giving can take many forms. Of course, it takes the form of financial, but it takes the form of service. It takes the form of giving people time and attention, giving love to people, serving others. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and nine, there's sort of what I consider to be, and from a New Testament point of view, the definitive passages on the issue of giving. And Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 12, for he, he said, for if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to what he does not have. So that chips away at a key issue with our attitude when we come to the Lord. We don't come to the Lord saying, well, well, God, I'm here to worship you, but I really can't worship you because of what I don't have. You see, the attitude as we come to the Lord is, Lord, here, here am I. Here's my heart. I come with all that I have, with all that I am, because at the end of the day, we will not ever be measured by what we have. We will only be measured by who we are before the Lord. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, as he talks about uh, financial giving, but this really applies to so many areas, he says, this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. So there's the attitude of coming to God and realizing that I have nothing but only what he has given to me or what he has allowed me to have. And as I come to the Lord, I come giving whatever I have and all that I have so that he might be honored. You see, he said there, we sow not sparingly, but we sow richly, we sow with grace. And God honors that because certainly when we consider how God gives to us, he gives us love and grace and mercy, and blessing upon blessing, and he does this willingly and freely. Freely you have received, so freely you and I should give. 
But in verse 5 of Genesis 4, God did not respect Cain and his offering. And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. So this issue of respecting the offering. The word respect here means to look upon with favor or with disfavor, with acceptableness or unacceptableness. And when it says here that Cain was very angry, that, that word, that phrase means that he was hot, that he was burning with fury, and that he was completely enraged. And then we are told there in verse 5 that his countenance fell. So his facial expression became sullen and fallen. Uh, his face became a reflection of his mood and his attitude. And the outward began to reflect the inward. And so we need to ask ourselves the question, if we're going to learn from Cain and Abel, what was it about Cain? Why was he so upset? What was he upset about? And so Cain evidently was indifferent about his offering. We already uh, have looked at Hebrews 11 that tells us that his offering was not in faith. But Abel was very careful about his offering as he came before the Lord. The rabbinic commentators note that fat and firstborn mean that Abel gave God the pick of the flock. He came with the heart attitude of giving God his very best. The difference between these two boys, between these two men, was the difference of heart attitude. Cain came to God on his own self-prescribed terms, but Abel came to God on God's terms. Cain's, Cain's spirit was arrogant, Cain, uh, Cain's offering was not from faith. He presumed to define what his sacrifice would be. He was the captain of his own heart, and God would uh, have to take him and his offering as it was. That's the way Cain's attitude was. Well, here I am, God. You just get it. You have to. You have to love me, God. You have to accept me as I am. And Lord, here's my offering which was really just sort of a half-hearted throw it on the altar kind of an offering if we are understanding this properly. So Cain laid down the terms of his worship before God. He laid down his own terms for what the offering would be. God would have to take him as it was. Lord, just accept me as I am. But later, the prophet Micah would speak to situations like this and said, will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? You see, Cain was anything but those things. Cain's anger was rooted in pride. He couldn't bear that his brother was accepted before God and he was not. It is not even possible that this was public knowledge. Excuse me, it is possible. It is even possible that this was public knowledge. Uh, if God consuming the sacrifice with fire indicated acceptance. You see, there are many who think, remembering that there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And remember the tree of the knowledge of good and evil back in chapter 3 became guarded by an angel and a flaming sword. But then there was the tree of life that was also guarded. And there are many who think that 
the tree of life was really the place of God's presence and really the place of the altar. And so we know that it was guarded so that sinful man couldn't go and take of the fruit of the tree of life and go through uh, eternity with sin in his heart. But many believe that that became sort of the dwelling place of God and that when they would go and worship God, rather than going to a temple, they would go to uh, the mouth of the garden and as near to that tree as they could get and then offer their sacrifices and their offering and their worship there before the tree of life. So the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Verse six, and why has your countenance fallen? You see, we can choose to react in the flesh or we can respond in the spirit. And this is always the question, isn't it? I mean, we've all experienced anger. Every human being has. But I think today, as we come to this passage of scripture, that the Holy Spirit wants to put his finger on something in our lives. So as I read this question again that God spoke to Cain, there's no doubt that some of us here today as we are listening may be angry. We may be dealing with something. Now we might have other words sometimes to couch and to uh, describe what we don't want to call as anger, such as frustration. But the Lord, as he spoke to Cain, hear these words as God perhaps may be speaking them to you today. Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Why have you responded the way that you have? So listen here. This is one of those rare times when we get to read and see God himself giving counsel to man. And listen to what he says in verse 7. This is God speaking to Cain regarding the issue of anger. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So here in this one verse of scripture, we are given an indication from the Lord of how we can deal with sin in our own lives, especially the sin of anger. If you do well, will you not be accepted? This is not addressing the issue of performance. It's addressing the issue of our heart as we come before the Lord. So if you do well, if your heart attitude is right with God, if you are right before God in the way that you are living, and if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. This is the truth, isn't it? That sin is waiting at the door. Its desire is for you to crouch upon you uh, like, like a lion or a cat about to uh, pounce upon its prey. And he says, but you should rule over it. So he's saying that self-control is possible. And doesn't the Lord say later in the scriptures as we look at the story of Saul, and remember that Saul was an angry man, King Saul. And the Lord said through the prophet to Saul, he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. And so the attitude of our heart before the Lord, is our heart right before him? You see, this is the root of anger. You see, Cain was angry in part with his brother. Now, I'm sure there was some sibling rivalry there. Cain was the older brother. Abel was the younger brother. Certainly there was some of that going on. 
But as the two brothers went before the Lord, and that jealousy uh, ensued in Cain's heart, perhaps he saw the offering that was being given and became bitter in spirit because he thought the offering was better. Perhaps he saw the spirit in which Abel offered his offering, and in that moment, the Holy Spirit convicted him about his offering, not about the offering itself, but about the way in which he brought the offering. You know, sometimes that's the way it is with us, isn't it? When we see someone doing well in the Lord, and God's just blessing them, and we're not, and we're not doing well in the Lord, and we don't feel that God is blessing us. You see, sometimes we become angry with the person but God was addressing the real issue, which wasn't, you know, Abel. Abel was not the issue here. Abel was not the problem. The problem was between Cain and God. And that's why he said, if you do well, will, it not, will you not be accepted? You see, earlier it was that the offering wasn't accepted, but here God says, will you not be accepted? You see, the whole point of worship is to come before God and to, to know that we are accepted before God, is it not? We are not here to appease an angry God and to bring something before him that'll make his wrath go away. We are here to come before God and worship him, to present ourselves to him, to enjoy the relationship that he has given to us. And so something, we don't know what had gone wrong in Cain's relationship with God. And that's what God was addressing in verse 7. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Not your offering, but you. And so Cain here was upset. He was angry at God because his worship and his offering were not accepted by God. Perhaps he thought, God, you should accept whatever I bring to you, however I bring it to you. But Cain's heart attitude was not right. His mental attitude was not right. And thus his offering was not right. But here we're going to see Cain refused to acknowledge his sin before God. Cain could have resisted sin and found blessing or he could give in to sin and be devoured by it. And he says, if you do not uh, if you do not do well, then sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. Sin, anger, it's all a choice that we make. It's not something that happens to us. You see, our emotions are responses that we control in response to stimuli around us. You see, God can be our master or sin can be our master. In Romans chapter 8, it says this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. 
And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. You see, we as New Testament believers enjoy the presence of God's Holy Spirit in our lives. Not just the indwelling, yes, we have that, praise God for that, but now we have the filling of the Holy Spirit. James said regarding this issue of temptation, which certainly is what Cain was dealing with, with his own sin, James says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. And I believe Cain was at that very point in his life. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. I just heard this week about a dear friend, uh, a couple that we've known for many years, and uh, we heard uh, through someone close to us and them that they are getting a divorce. And uh, the Christian couple, known them for many years, and uh, I've seen from a distance for many years the trouble in their relationship. And sadly, in this particular situation, the wife uh, has always been an angry person. And I'm sure there's reasons behind that for her. But uh, she, the whole time that they've been married that I've been aware of has just been kind of an angry, controlling person. And anger is something, folks, that we have to get control on. We have to deal with it. We can't ignore it. There's the temporary things that happen. Yes, we might get angry and we stub our toe or something like that. And, and certainly it's not good to respond in anger. But the question is, is there an undercurrent of anger in our lives? Jesus said regarding anger, you have heard that it was said of old, to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, as Cain did, and there remember that your brother has something against you, which was not true in Cain's case. He had something against his brother and against God. But the principle applies. Jesus says, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You see, that's the way you deal with anger. If there's an issue with a brother or sister, then you go and you deal with them meaning you talk with them and you humble yourself before them. And listen, the issue is not who's right and who's wrong. The issue is how you handle your anger before God. Remember the illustration of the cross? The cross is made up of two beams. There's the vertical beam and the cross beam. 
And the vertical beam, I believe, represents our vertical relationship with God, and the cross beam represents our horizontal relationship with our fellow mankind. And see, often we deal with the issue on the horizontal. We see others in Christ, or even others outside of Christ, and we deal with them on the horizontal in anger. But understand this, that everything that happens on the horizontal, at least in my heart, is an indication of the condition of the vertical relationship. You see, if I am doing well with the Lord, if I am walking with him, if I am in harmony with him, if I'm keeping short accounts with God and I'm confessing my sin and I'm walking before him in integrity, then the horizontal will take care of itself, I believe. But when we are walking in such a way that there's difficulty in our lives, meaning we're angry with people, we're having relational issues, we're seeing a problem in everything somebody says, we're seeing the negative, the glass is half empty, and all of that, listen, look in the mirror, and then look up to God and realize your relationship with God is not right, and that was the issue here with Cain. Now Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Now keep in mind, God confronted Cain before he killed his brother. Have you considered that? Do you understand that there's an order here? That God himself spoke with Cain and gave him counsel before he, con he conspired within his own heart to go and kill his brother? Now Cain talked with Abel, verse eight, his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. You see, God viewed Abel as a prophet. How do we know that? In Matthew 23 and Luke 11, Jesus himself said uh, that, this is speaking to the people who had killed the prophets, uh, speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. He says that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. And then in Luke, which is a parallel passage, he says that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation from the blood of Abel, to the blood of Zechariah. You see, God viewed Abel because of his heart condition as a prophet. So Abel, if you're counting the firsts, was the first prophet named in the scriptures. And Cain, it wasn't that Cain killed somebody important, namely his brother or the first prophet, but it was an indication of probably what was getting at the root of Cain's issues. You see, Cain saw the righteousness in his brother's life. And I believe this stirred him because when, I don't know about you, but if you've ever been around someone who's just doing really well and they're walking with the Lord and you're not, it's a mirror, isn't it? It just speaks to you of, of your own condition before God. And I believe uh, Abel's life Abel's relationship with God was such a mirror to Cain that he could bear it no more and he killed his brother to remove the reminder of his constant sin and his heart condition before God. Then the Lord said to Cain in verse nine, where is Abel your brother? And he said that famous line that has been quoted by so many people over the centuries. I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? 
You see, actually he was, he was the older brother. He was responsible for his brother and they were family. So regardless of whether he was the older or the younger, there was a familial relationship there. There was a family love that there was an obligation to take care of one another. So the very way he words this question back to God is like throwing it in God's face and making an unkind gesture to God, saying something like, don't you know where people are? It's not my problem, it's not my fault. The fact of the matter is that he was supposed to know something about his brother's condition. The Lord warned Cain that this temptation was like a fierce beast crouching at the door and he had better not open that door. It's dangerous to carry grudges and harbor bitter feelings in our hearts because all of this can be used by Satan to lead us into temptation and to sin. This is what Paul meant when he wrote in Ephesians 4, neither give place to the devil. In that passage, Paul was talking about anger. If we aren't careful, we can tempt ourselves and bring about our own ruin. You see, we can't separate our relationship with God from our relationship with our brothers and sisters. That includes our natural brothers and sisters as well as our brothers and sisters in the Lord. An unforgiving spirit, such as possessed Cain, hinders worship and destroys our fellowship with God and with God's people. It's better that we interrupt our worship and get right with a brother than to pollute our sacrifice because we have a bad spirit within. God said to Cain, verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and have run greedily in the error of Balaam, Jude said, for profit, and have perished in the rebellion of Korah. What is the way of Cain that Jude speaks of? The way of Cain is unbelief, empty religion leading to jealousy, the persecution of the godly, and ultimately it feeds murderous anger. There is no greater curse on the earth than empty, vain religion, one person said, and those who have a form of godliness but not deny its power, according to what Paul wrote to, to Timothy. Many are deathly afraid of secular humanism or atheism, but dead religion sends more people to hell than anything else. I think that's pretty powerful when we consider that. You see, the self-will and the unbelief that was present in Cain's heart was what really took him down. Cain came to God his own way. He refused to acknowledge his sin, and he refused to get his way right before the Lord. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden, and Cain became a rejected wanderer in the earth. The more you think about Cain's sin, the more heinous it becomes. The murder wasn't motivated by sudden passion. It was carefully premeditated. Cain didn't kill a stranger in defense. He murdered his own brother out of envy and hatred. Furthermore, Cain did it after being at the altar to worship God. Keep that in mind. They had gone to the altar to worship before he had committed the murder. And in spite of God's warnings, he did what he did. Finally, once the horrible deed was done, Cain took it all very lightly and tried to lie his way out of it. 
Thus Cain became guilty before God. So now you are cursed from the earth, verse 11, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. So this is the first instance in the Bible where a human being is cursed. And notice what is said here. It's said that um, you shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. See, a fugitive is someone who's running away from home and running away from the crime they've committed. They're fleeing. A vagabond is someone without a home. Strangers and pilgrims, which were spoken of in the New Testament, a stranger is someone who's just simply away from home, and a pilgrim is someone who's headed toward home. So Cain and all those like him in spirit are fugitive and vagabonds. They're running from something, they're running from home, and they are someone without a home. But today, if you are in Christ, you are strangers and pilgrims here on the earth, we're told in Hebrews, and again in uh, the letter that Peter wrote, First Peter, he says, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from the fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. We are away from home, our home is in heaven, but we are headed toward home. And Cain said to the Lord, verse 13, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And the language here indicates more that of a tone of whining. God, you're being too hard on me. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face which is where he was anyway. <laughs> I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me, complaining before God. And so here Cain did not feel bad about his sin. He didn't repent. He only cared about his punishment and many of us are like him, aren't we? One person said, one of the clearest marks of our sin is our almost innate desire to excuse ourselves and to complain if we are judged in any way. Another person said, Donald Gray Barnhouse, one of the consequences of sin is that it makes the sinner pity himself instead of causing him to turn to God. One of the first signs of new life is that the individual takes sides with God against himself, admitting that God is right. You see, by hating and murdering his brother and refusing to repent, Cain created for himself an intolerable life. He opened the door to temptation. He closed the door on his family, on God, and on his future. And no matter where he lived or what he did, Cain would always be a restless man for whom there was no remedy. Why? Because he refused to repent. And here's the issue with anger. Anger before God, God speaks to us and he gives us an opportunity to repent, as is true with any ungodly attitude that we have or that we possess. And so the issue here of all of this as we consider the issue of Cain is the issue of repentance. Are we quick to repent when we become aware of our sin before God? And if it involves other people, then before other people. Or do we hold on to it? Do we perseverate on it 
Do we hang on to others' wrongs? And do we constantly meditate on what they've done and how they've hurt us rather than being right with God and praying for their soul and praying for their condition before God if indeed we are in a situation where others have hurt us or are hurting us? You see, we need to come before the Lord and pray and keep our hearts right before God even if others are not doing that. You see, I'm responsible before God for my heart and the condition of my relationship with him. And in that sense, I'm not my brother's keeper in the sense that I'm not responsible for their relationship with God. However, if I truly love a brother or a sister in Christ and I see them going the way of error, then it is within my purview to come to them not as someone who is lording it over them, but as someone who loves them and comes and says, hey, I love you and here's what's going on. And yes, point it out. But you see, the way in which we do it can be harmful or it can be helpful. And hopefully, like the Lord, we can be helpful. The Lord said to Cain, therefore whoever kills Cain, verse 15, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. What was the mark? We don't know. But we do know that whatever it was, it was evident to others that God himself had set a mark upon Cain. And you see here that even in the midst of what Cain had done, and according to the, the, the law as it's later given through Moses, someone in the situation of Cain who had committed premeditated manslaughter would be put to death. But here God in his great love and his great mercy and his amazing grace gives Cain a reprieve. He allows him to be sent away and to continue to live. And he even puts a mark upon him so that others would know that they should not touch him or kill him. That's the grace and the mercy of the Lord in the, the face of the situation where Cain was guilty as sin, as we like to say, and yet God had mercy on his soul. Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Interestingly, the, the, the name Nod means wandering, so it's consistent with God's sentence upon him. And in verse 17, now Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, interestingly, uh, we don't know if Cain was married when he had committed this sin or not of murdering his brother, but she's... Uh, Either they got married or she's still married to him. And she conceived and bore Enoch, a son. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And the word Enoch or the name Enoch means dedicated. So to Enoch was born Erod, and Erod begot Mehuajel, and Mehuajel begot Methuselahshel, and Methuselahshel begot Lamech. Then Lamech took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the second was Zillah. So the name Lamech may mean conqueror. He was the seventh from Adam on Cain's side. And Lamech also had a streak of arrogance within him. And he is uh, in, held up in contrast to Enoch, which we'll find out in the next chapter. Enoch was a man who truly walked closely with God. 
And so I think it's interesting and worth pointing out how God often will set at least one godly, God-fearing, God-loving person within a family of people who hate God. And God does that certainly for a witness, certainly for the person whom he sets there as a righteous example. But it's also, I think, a witness to the fact that we, if we happen to be that person, that we are there to represent the Lord Jesus Christ and the goodness of God to those family members who have rejected God. So Lamech now becomes the first person to commit polygamy in the Bible, verse 19. He took for himself two wives. The name of one was Ada and the second was Zillah. Um, if you forget their names, sometimes we forget these names. You know, you play a little mind game here. Um, I don't know what I can give you to remember Ada, but Zilla, you can just put the word God in front of it, Godzilla, so you should be able to remember her name. Hopefully she wasn't like that. And Ada bore Jabel, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the harp and the flute. So you can see how God is now through the propagation of life and mankind is now bringing other skills and other um, uh, trades into the world. And as for Zilla, she also bore Tubal Cain, an instructor of every craftsman in bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal Cain was Nema. Then Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. Wives of Lamech, listen to my speech, for I have killed a man and for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. If Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventyfold. So now because of the first crime of murder that was committed by Cain, and certainly that was well known throughout the generations, now this man Lamech does the same thing. He commits murder, and it says, I've killed a man for wounding me. And isn't that what often happens when we become wounded in some way, whether it's physically or emotionally or even spiritually? We somehow in our mind and in our heart, we justify our retaliation, we justify our reaction, and then we premeditate and we go out and we take action against that person. And he says, I've killed a man for wounding me, even a young man for hurting me. And so he's confessing this to his wives. And then he proclaims in arrogance and boldness, if Cain shall be avenged sevenfold, then Lamech seventyfold. Where is that coming from? You know, God is the one who spoke to Cain and offered what you might call the plea bargain with Cain. But here, Lamech himself is acting as his own defense attorney and saying, here's the terms that God's going to grant to me. You see, sin emboldens sin, doesn't it? We tend to think that because somebody else got away with something that I can get away with it. Or that if somebody else got away with something and they've set the precedent, we love to argue in our legal system the issue of legal precedent, don't we? then I also should be judged with the same leniency or greater than the previous committer of a crime should be has been judged. So Lamech boasts here about his murder. He's not confessing it, he's boasting. And he's emboldened in his sin. But also we should not lose sight of the fact that just as sin emboldens sin, listen, righteousness emboldens righteousness. And that if we do the right thing, 
and we walk uprightly and humbly and justly with our God, then others also will be encouraged to do the same thing. Adam knew his wife again, verse 25, and she bore a son and named him Seth. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed. So it would seem here that Adam and Eve saw the birth of this new son, Seth, to in, in a sense be a replacement for the righteous son named Abel. For God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel whom Cain killed. So Abel was the one whom the promise of a deliverer from the seed of the woman that came back in Genesis 3.15 would be passed through. You see, they, they thought that it would be through Cain or Abel. Cain obviously turned out to be a bad egg, so to speak, and of course he killed his brother Abel. So now God brings a new person into the bloodline, another righteous person who would be the one through whom God would bring the Messiah. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born and he named him Enosh. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. I love how the Lord, after he, he, he tells us about these things that have happened in the world, and he does this all throughout the scriptures, and we see the horrible nature of sin, and we see a judgment, and we see crime, and we see heinous things taking place. We often find the Lord doing these kinds of little things here that we find in verse 26. Then men began to call on the name of the Lord. We already see here, by the end of chapter four, and again, we don't know how many years have passed, but the perversion of mankind, and how sin had entered the world, and how sin had already become uh, morphing into to just terrible ways of what man was doing to man, and how man was violating God's law, and how man was shaking his fist against God and rebelling against God. And then here, men began to call on the name of the Lord. <clears throat> Some have called this verse in Genesis 4.26 the first revival in the Bible because it's the first indication of a spiritual resurgence after a clear decline. So may we end today on this note. May we be like these men here, men and women, who call on the name of the Lord of the Lord. And if the Lord has spoken to you today about the issue of anger or some other way in which you're not right before God, and listen, you know, as you sit here this morning, I trust that you know, are you right before God this morning or are you not? And I'm not talking about being saved. I'm saying the condition of your relationship with him. Now, if you're listening this morning as we bring this to a close and you've never trusted the Lord, you've never come to him for forgiveness of sin, then you need to do that to enter his presence. You need to repent of your sin and turn and follow the Lord Jesus. And this morning, if you are a believer in Christ, but you have that instinctive knowledge in your heart, as the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that maybe you're not walking in the proper manner before God, then this morning, today, is an opportunity for repentance before the Lord. I believe that's really the jump up big point of this passage of scripture, is that as long as it's called today, there's still an opportunity for us to repent and to keep ourselves right 
before God or to get right before God. You see, Cain didn't want to repent. For whatever reason, he loved his misery. For whatever reason, he felt justified in his mind about his anger, either toward God or toward his brother. But today, I plead with you as a brother in Christ, do not walk away from this moment harboring anger and bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, regardless of the reason. You know what the, the scriptures say? It says, let it go. Forgive. Leave it at the altar. And I want you to remember this morning that when our Lord Jesus Christ was crucified on that cross, and that as he hung on that cross that day and as, as the weight of heaven came down and there was darkness on the earth that fell down from 12 to 3 p.m. and the wrath of God was poured out on the sun and that Jesus became the propitiation, meaning the satisfaction of God's wrath toward the sin of man. And then Jesus came to that moment where before he breathed his last and bowed his head, he said, it is finished. And I want you to understand that he did that for you, he did that for me. And he wants us to understand, our sin is forgiven. And then he says to us in Colossians 3, just as you have been forgiven, so shall you forgive others. Jesus said with the issue of forgiveness, if you will not forgive one another, then God will not forgive you. You see, by choosing to hang on to bitterness and unforgiveness, and anger, we are putting ourselves in a place of walking out from underneath the blessing and the protection of God Almighty, the very protection that he's given us by his grace through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Don't let anger and bitterness keep you from the blessing and the presence of God. You see, when we walk in unforgiveness, when we walk, when our, when our heart is not right before God, then we are walking in such a way that our, our fellowship with God, not our relationship, but our fellowship is broken. We still have a relationship with him, but now we're living in estrangement. And the longer we live and walk in that estrangement, the harder it becomes to go back and to repent and to ask for forgiveness and to say I'm sorry and to say I was wrong and listen, even if you don't think you were wrong, can I encourage you today? Do it anyway. You see, was, was Jesus wrong to take our sin upon himself? Was Jesus wrong to say, I'm taking your sin and my sin and to, to walk before the Father as we're told in 1 John chapter 2? Little children, if anyone sins, know that you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And here's what happens in the heavenly scene every time we sin. We sin, the Father sees it. And Jesus, our righteous advocate, our defense attorney, stands up before the throne of God and says, Father, forgive him. Father, forgive her, for they know not what they do, just as he said when he was being nailed to the cross. You see, there is forgiveness and there is freedom from our anger and from our bitterness. And the thing we need to do is understand why does it exist, but ultimately to leave it at the foot of the cross. Lord, this morning we bless you, we honor you, we worship you. And Lord, for any this morning who need 
to, to do that. They need to just leave something before the throne of grace. Then, Lord, I pray right now they would do it. And I pray with the most assured confidence that I've ever prayed, Lord, this morning, just in the spirit as we pray, that many are laying down burdens of sin and anger and bitterness this morning. And Lord, we rejoice at that and we praise you, God, for how these things rob us of the joy and the passion that we long to have before you in your presence. So Lord, this morning, let us be like Abel. Let us bring a wholehearted, sacrificial offering that's offered in faith. And let us lay down the anger and the bitterness and the pride and the sin and the things that sap the life and grieve the spirit and quench the work that you want to do in our lives. Oh God, this morning, may you be free to pour out the fire of God in our lives as we repent of our sin and lay it down before you and receive the goodness of God through the, the Son, Jesus. And this morning, if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, may today be your moment, your, your moment of reckoning before God as you lay down your sin and you turn to him and you say, Lord, I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want that kind of freedom. I want that forgiveness. I want to be free of the garbage and the sin. And Lord, we lay these things down before you this morning, and in Jesus' name, we receive the forgiveness that you offer so freely. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you this week as you walk with him.